We are continuing a journey that we began last week with a question. Why are we here? We've been leading up to this for over a year and a half, getting us ready to find out uh, in the awakening that I believe must come if we're to have hope, what is supposed to be going on with us. Bay Vista Baptist, why are we here? And you and I, I was reminded today, those of you who've been around a while, you and I began this journey together 12 years ago today. That's hard to, yeah, I know. It's hard to imagine. And I, I won't say who of us have aged, but we began it 12 years ago today when I got to meet this congregation for the first time on a Saturday morning. And I'm so glad God did, in fact, bring us together. But today, we're going to focus, again, on what we began last week. Why are we here? The Word of God makes it very clear that we are here together to worship. And if we are getting this wrong, everything else will be tilted, skewed. We have got to have a constant connection with our God, both individually and as members of His church. And so we are here to worship. David Schrader opened up an article about a song and its story, how it came to be. And he opened the article by saying, check the liner notes of almost any modern worship recording, and the name Matt Redman is likely to be among the songwriting credits. And he talks about one particular song that Redman wrote in the late 90s, and actually lets Redman tell the story. But the song was born during a period of apathy within Matt's home church, Soul Survival in Watford, England. You may or may not be aware of this, but England has been a very huge driving force in modern worship, songs, music. But at that time, at that church, they were struggling. Struggling to find meaning in the musical outpouring of the time. Where was their place? And Redmond said there was a dynamic missing. So the pastor did a very, a pretty brave thing. And imagine if I tried that here. Listen. He decided to get rid of the sound system and band for a season. We gathered together with just our voices. His point was that we had lost our way in worship, and the way to get back to the heart would be to strip everything away. Reminding his church family that they should be producers in worship and not just consumers, Mike Pilavachi, the pastor, asked a question. And I will leave this question with you as well today. When you come through the doors on a Sunday, what are you bringing as your offering to God? Now Matt says, initially, there was a lot of embarrassing silence. As people sat and stared and pondered. But then he said, eventually, people broke into a cappella songs, heartfelt prayers, encountering God in a fresh way. And he said, before long, we reintroduced the musicians and sound system as we gained a new perspective that worship is all about God, about Jesus. And he commands a response in the depths of our souls, no matter what the circumstance and setting. And he said the song, The Heart of Worship, that we sang last week and was new to many of you. 
The heart of worship simply described what occurred in that church. Listen to the lyric. When the music fades, all is stripped away and I simply come. Longing just to bring something that's of worth that will bless your heart. I'm coming back to the heart of worship and it's all about you, Jesus. It's all about you. Raymond said he went home very quickly and wrote the song in his bedroom and had no pretensions, no understanding, no intention that this would become an international anthem. He viewed the words simply as his personal, subjective response to what he was learning about worship. But he shared the song with his pastor, and Pilavachi made a suggestion, change a few lyrics here and there so that any member of the church could relate to it as well as Redmond. And Redmond was amazed at how God has since taken this song that was born out of his heart and his struggle around the world for his purposes. The song was his heart speaking to God. And it has taken on a a richness that it has become the hearts of many people. And Matt Redmond said, It nearly didn't go any further than my bedroom, and I love that. It's not too hard to understand that Christians can find themselves drifting from the heart of worship. It's certainly not something we intend to do. No one ever gets up and says, today is the day my worship is going to become rote. It's not what we intend to do, but week in, week out, if we are not attentive, if we are not focused on what's happening, we can find ourselves going through the motions. We can find ourselves in a church service and not necessarily in worship. And so this morning, we are going to examine a part of a text that I shared with you 11 years ago. Not quite as soon as I got here, but not long thereafter. Now, I want to remind you, for those of you who'd like to mark in your Bibles the dates of my name by a text, this is not a summer rerun. We looked at the whole text 11 years ago, and we're going to just take a snapshot out of it and try to understand. I am adding a few more verses than what Natalie read to give you a little bit of a more context. You see, as God has been dealing with my heart, Over the last few months, where do we need to be going? Why are we here? He brought me back to what is one of my most loved passages in the Word of God. It's the encounter Jesus had with a woman of bad reputation in a land of bad reputation, Samaria. And as far as I'm concerned, it is one of the most beautiful stories in the New Testament. In the heat of the day, Jesus has sent his disciples to go up to Sychar to buy food, and a woman shows up to get water at Sychar well at the bottom of the hill. Now, for a woman to go in the heat of the day to get water tells you something immediately. She's not there in the morning or in the evening with other women. They apparently do not like her, respect her, or want her. So here is an encounter with an outsider. 
And I believe it was this encounter that caused Jesus to tell his disciples when they were making plans of going from Jerusalem to Galilee that he said, I must go through Samaria. See, Jewish folks on that trek would go around the, the Jordan and cross over without having to put their foot in Samaria. But he said, I must go there. And by the well, they had an intriguing conversation. And that was revolutionary itself. You see, rabbis didn't talk to women in private out in a public setting. That just didn't happen. And so the fact that Jesus was willing to have this conversation is amazing. And the conversation grew, drew out many interpreters, and for a lot of years myself, we looked at this passage of Scripture, and what we see is a woman trying her best to throw up verbal roadblocks to Jesus. As he keeps confronting her with where she's at, she's trying to get a rabbit trail going. So she won't have to deal with it. And that was the only way that I approached this text for many years. But as we share our text today, and we're going to be looking at John 4, 19 through 24, I want to share with you another possibility. So I'm going to, I'm going to beg your indulgence. First, I am going to ask you to go ahead and stand as we read the word. But I'm going to pause every once in a while, be calm. It's not a long passage, and I'm not going to pause for 10 minutes of break, okay? Let's hear what Jesus had to say to this woman. And it began, Sir, the woman said, I can see that you are a prophet. Our ancestors worshipped on this mountain, but you Jews claim that the place where we must worship is Jesus. Is in Jerusalem, excuse me. And she has just been told by Jesus, go get your husband. She says, well, I'm not married. And he, says, and he looks at her. And I don't know if he smiled. I don't know if he frowned. He said, you're answering true. You've been married five times, and the man you're living with now is not your husband. And so, as we have tended to see, she throws up the rabbit trail. But that's not important. Where are we supposed to worship? But over a, a period of time, men as diverse as John Gill, a five-point Calvinist way back in, uh, in British history, uh, and uh, William Barclay, a Scottish minister who was anything but a five-point Calvinist, John Corson, more modernly, all challenged me. Let, hear what Corson had to say. Could it be that the woman was not simply raising a theological question? Could it be she was revealing a subconscious desire within? Could it be that her question was not meant to sidestep the issue of her five husbands, but the, she was saying, I want to worship, but where and how? What does it mean to truly worship? And I think there's wisdom there. Remember, Jesus just told her something he could not possibly know. And she was convicted. And so maybe her question isn't, let's change the subject. Maybe her question is, you really are a prophet. You can settle this issue for me. How can my life be changed? And so Jesus responds. And his very first word, do not take this as a scorn, woman. Now, if I call any of you today after church, if I say, woman, you have my permission 
to be very angry with me. But remember, Jesus used the same term for his mom. It was not a put down. Woman, he said, believe me, a time is coming when you will worship the Father neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem. Now let me pause again just a moment because this is really beautiful and we miss it. What does he call God in this text right here? Father. He doesn't tell her, you will worship God neither in Gerizim or in Jerusalem, but Father. And in that one statement, he's opening a door of possibility. You Samaritans can know God as Father. Because Father is a term of intimacy. It's a term of love and compassion. God can just be that great I am. But here, Father. It's not going to happen there. Now, he does draw the truth to her. You Samaritans worship what you do not know. We worship what we do know for salvation, literally for the salvation is from the Jews. Yet a time is coming and now has now come when the true worshipers will worship the Father in the Spirit and in truth, for they are the kind of worshipers the Father seeks. God is Spirit, and His worshipers must worship in the Spirit and in the truth. You may be seated, and may God bless the reading of His Word. Now, whether you choose to look at this as a woman trying to cause a... a rabbit chase, cause a distraction, I want you to notice she asks a question, where are we supposed to worship? And Jesus answers, not where, but what is real worship? And folks, I believe with everything in me, in this short text, we're drawn to a a reality. We need to be sure that we are engaged in true worship. Because what this comes down to is our worship true or false. I know a lot of people don't like true or false questions and tests. I love them. And we're going to do a little test. We're going to take a look. We're going to look at who we are and what we can be. Now, how do I know that what I do here is true, is meaningful, is what God wants. How do I know if I'm simply offering up a sham? We do so by listening closely to Jesus because he outlines the differences between true and false religion. And we will begin with the negative. We're going to look at the false. And I want you to understand we can recognize and reject false worship. We are capable if we care to know whether or not our worship is coming from someplace other than our walk with God. And Jesus lets us see that in the conversation with the Samaritan woman. We can recognize and reject. Jesus pointed to the problem of Samaritan worship. He immediately lets her know He's extending her grace. You can worship the Father, but right now you don't know what you're doing. And he wants to lead her to the truth. Now, what was the problem with the Samaritan worship? Why was it false? To begin with, it was built upon 
ignorance. It was built upon ignorance. Now, there's necessarily not, a, not necessarily anything wrong with ignorance as long as you choose not to stay there. They had stayed. Long before Jesus and this Samaritan woman met at the Jacob's well near Sychar, the Samaritans had made a choice. Keep in mind, if you don't know your Bible history, these are remnants of the kingdom of Israel. The people of the northern kingdom that did not get spread all over the Assyrian army, or land and empire, they stayed in Samaria, they intermarried with pagans, and they drew further and further away from their heritage. And the choice they made, we are only going to recognize the five books of Moses. The first five books of the Bible, the Pentateuch, the Torah, that's all there is to Scripture. And we don't want anything else. In other words, they rejected every other passage of Scripture that finds its way into our Bible. They rejected the historical statements. They rejected the poetic statements of the writings from Proverbs, Psalms, uh, Ecclesiastes. They rejected the prophets. They said, we don't want that. How many of you remember or may perhaps still own a Reader's Digest condensed novel? You guys remember those? If you like to read, but not real lot. These folks had a condensed faith because they had a condensed Bible. They rejected the knowledge that had been open to them. They were aware of some of those texts, but they said, we don't want them. The only real Bible are the five books of Moses. So they turned away from God's revelation, the knowledge they could have had, and chose to live in ignorance of their God. Another problem with Samaritan worship was that it was focused on a place. A place. They had come to believe Mount Gerizim was the true place where God could be encountered. And it was the only place that God could be encountered. You couldn't meet him in Jerusalem. That wasn't the right place. It had to be on Gerizim. So they turned their back on any testimony, any word, any statement that said God can be experienced in a much broader sense than Gerizim. And because it was not based on the revelation of God, their commitment to Gerizim was basically superstitious. It's a magical place. And they focused their worship on a thing. Now, be it a big thing, a mountain. But it's still a thing. It's kind of the mentality when we think our prayers are heard better in this building. And I've talked about this, I don't know how many times I've heard a grown-up tell a kid, and it probably should be sometimes a kid telling the grown-up, don't lie in church. And what that suggests, go outside the building, and all bets are off. Gerizim was their good luck charm. If we res remain true to this place, God will finally and fully bless us. A thing rather than God. 
And tying into all of this, why was Samaritan worship false? It was a religion of the flesh. A religion of the flesh. Now, you need to know something about John. John does not use this word in his writings the way Paul does. When Paul uses the term flesh, it could just mean your body. It could mean your humanity. But Paul also uses this term for sin, that rebellious thing in us that says no to God when he says yes. John never uses it like that. Instead, for John, it is about humanity in its weakness. And this makes it an issue of flesh because it's been pointed out they not only chose to ignore all of the books of the Bible besides the first five books of Moses. Barclay has pointed out they even adjusted the first five books of Moses. They changed it to fit their purpose. They taught that it was on Mount Gerizim that Abraham was ready to sacrifice his son Isaac. They said it was on Gerizim that Melchizedek met Abraham. And Abraham paid tithes to this priest. We didn't know where he came from. And when Moses got ready to offer sacrifices, the children of Israel were going into Canaan. It was on Mount Gerizim when Deuteronomy clearly says it's on Mount Ebal. So what happened? They took the five books and they say, this is the word of God. And they changed it. They changed it because they wanted to. They weren't, cur- they weren't wanting to find out what God was saying. They wanted a worship of convenience. They wanted a worship that did not contain the tough words. The words of the prophets, who had not only condemned Sumerian worship, but also condemned Jerusalem, Israel's worship, when they only went through emotions and the sacrifices didn't mean anything. Well, I don't like that, so I just won't read it. I want the favorite parts. They turned away from what could have shown them the errors of their way. They turned away from what could have brought them back to God. And the thing about it, they were probably very sincere. Jesus, by saying you must worship him in spirit, is not challenging sincerity. They had come to the place where they really believed all of this. They were sincere, but they were sincerely wrong. And in John's writing, he said, you're not able to find the truth in and of yourselves. They were the epitome of worshiping in the flesh what was supposed to be godly. Now, let's deal with us. This is a part where you would really like me to just jump to truth. But the reality is, we can easily fall into the trap of worship that is based on false concepts. And I hate to say it, it happens all the time. For over much of that, the last half of the 20th century, going well into the 21st century, we have seen a phenomenon in the West. We continue to see 
more and more a worship that is a watered-down faith. And if you look carefully, what is going on in Christendom today, that broad umbrella of everyone who says, I'm a believer, you will discover that there is more entertainment than we would want to admit. During the 1990s, there was, or the late 80s into the 90s, there was a movement called the seeker-sensitive movement. And some folks were very sincere, and their heart was in the right place. We need to find out, how do we get lost people to God? The problem with many in the movement, not all of them, but many of the movement said, well, what we need to do is restructure everything. And worship on Sunday morning is no longer about worship for believers. It's going to be worship for the non-churched. It's going to be worship for those who don't know God. In short, they said, we've got to find ways to hook them, to entertain them. And no less than Bill Hybels, one of the leading proponents of the seeker-sensitive movement in the 90s, in 2007 said, you know what, we got some things wrong, and we're restructuring. You see, the idea began, and I, get, I was getting material all over the place from all sorts of folks saying, make your, your worship entertaining, make it lively, use good marketing skills like the world uses, and you can grow a church. And it's not just us. The 1990s provided such a change in our culture. Uh, some of you will know the writer, Michael Crichton. Listen, in his book, Timeline, listen how he just described our culture in general. Today, everybody expects to be entertained, and they expect to be entertained all the time. Everyone must be amused or they will switch. Switch brands, switch channels, switch parties, switch loyalties. This is the intellectual reality of the Western society today. In other centuries, human beings wanted to be saved or improved or freed or educated, but now they want to be entertained. The great fear is not of disease or death, but of boredom. And so, churches bought into the idea. Let's focus on music the lost will want to hear. I've shared with some of you my I had the privilege of baptizing my son-in-law a year before he and Jessica got married. And he was raised and did not have much room for God in his life. He started dating my daughter and showing up in church. But unlike other uh, boyfriends who had done that, he actually listened and God got hold of him that way. I asked him what he thought about modern church music, and he laughed. Now that hurt a little bit, but he laughed and he said, well, the problem is much of it's bad. And for a lot of these folks who are out there, they just want to sound like everybody else. But they're not very good at it. I recently had an encounter with two other folks of that age range who echoed my son-in-law's thoughts. Sermons took a change and Sermons became more about self-help, positive thinking, pep talk. Folks, they were religious TED Talks. Telling you how you can get your life together. 
how you can feel good. And American consumerism was invading the church. People began looking and asking, what do you have to offer me? Not sincerely seeking the Lord, where can I be used to the glory of God? And if you didn't like what you saw in one church, you just went to another until you found a place that it all came together. And so often, song style took precedent over the message. Now, you know me, or most of you do. I love all styles of music. I love hymns that are 500 years old. I love choruses that are still wet on ink almost. I love all kinds of music. But the music I love are pieces of music that exalt the Lord, that speak to truth, not just a catchy tune. Entertaining sermons were held in higher esteem than struggles with the meat of the word. And this isn't a new phenomenon. I don't want to just pick on us because it's our day and age. Folks, it's been going on a while. Charles Spurgeon, one of the greatest preachers in 19th century England, preached a sermon. I wish I'd come across this title once or twice in my Feeding Sheep or Amusing Goats. Get ready. In the 1800s, he said, an evil is in the professed, is in the professed camp of the Lord. So gross in its impudence that the most short-sighted can hardly fail to notice it during the past few years. It has developed at an abnormal rate, even for evil. It has worked like leaven into the whole lump ferments. The devil has seldom done a cleverer thing than hinting to the church that part of their mission is to provide entertainment for the people with a view to winning them. Say and do what they want to hear so you can get them. And folks, it's not even going back to the 19th century. In the first century, led by the Spirit of God, Paul addressed this very problem in 2 Timothy chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. Some of you will know this text really well. For the time will come when people will not put up with sound doctrine. Instead, to suit their own desires, they will gather around them a great number of teachers to say what their itching ears want to hear. They will turn their ears away from the truth and turn aside to myths. So what do we need to do? We need to make a choice to rid ourselves of all the trappings of the Samaritan's opening question. Please notice that Jesus didn't argue about the right place. He would never have gotten around to her heart if he did. And it's been said, Gerald Borchardt wrote, Christians who seek to be ambassadors for Christ must always be wary of falling into the trap of arguing about the right place of worship or the right denomination. I would add the right music, the right scripture to read from, on and on. Just as Jesus did not argue with the presuppositions of Nicodemus, he did not argue with the woman here. And Borchardt said, the point is not winning arguments, but introducing people to the dimension of God in their lives, letting them know about God. Redmond was right. 
the heart of worship is all about Jesus. And we need to make a choice to rid ourselves of all the trappings. We cannot be afford to be ignorant about the God, what God wants from our worship or from our lives. Which is a recurring theme in my preaching since the time I came here. We have to know the word. We cannot allow the church to simply become a good luck charm. What do I mean by that? I, mean, I know some of you think I would never think that. But folks, I've heard people say, I had to come to church today because things have been going wrong and I needed God to be happy with me and help me. So I'm going to go to church so God will bless me. And we can't allow the flesh to drive our worship. We must understand what we do here is not entertainment. What we do here has so much more. So now let's jump to the truth. What is our goal? What is our aim? Well, we can understand and embrace true worship. If we've been doing it wrong, that can change with a change of our hearts, with a change of our minds. And Jesus indicated there was one acceptable type of worship. And it wasn't whether you sing the Psalms, hymns, or chorus songs. The one type of worship was not whether you stand up and bow down a lot, whether you have a church building that is as plain as it can possibly get or ornate. Jesus said, one acceptable type of worship. And what is it? It was worship in spirit and truth. Now, I will share with you thought, the idea that the, you had to come to Jerusalem to worship, that was going to be a moot point in just a few decades. In 70 AD, the Roman Empire destroyed the temple. You could not come and sacrifice in Jerusalem ever again. RTCH Linsky said, all the temple and the ceremonial rituals of Jerusalem had served so long was passing away. It was already gone. Why? Messiah had come. I was about to enter into an usher in a new age. And he pointed out something that, honestly, I'd never observed before. But you will not find a text where Jesus goes to the temple to offer a sacrifice. You will not find a text where Jesus goes to the prescribed times of prayer. When Jesus does talk about the temple, he talks about my father's house. And he uses it to help people see what the kingdom of God is all about. And on the day he died, the writer of Hebrews understood when Jesus is on the cross dying, the veil that separated the holy of holies from the holy place was torn from top to bottom. God was saying, you're not going to be saved through sacrifice. Because the sacrifice, not the blood of bulls and rams, the Son of God just died. We need to be careful. Spirit and truth. So what does that mean? It's easy to understand 
negatively. What Jesus was saying, at least, don't tie worship to a place, to a sacred site or a sacred ritual. Worship doesn't happen that way. But he gives us more insight because he lets us know when you look at the book of John, it becomes clear this phrase, spirit and truth, is linked to a recurring theme in John, spirit versus flesh. I've already indicated John uses flesh only to talk about humanity. He talks about us in our weakness, in our inability, in our powerlessness to do anything of a godly nature. He was telling this woman, you can't know God if you're trying to do so in the flesh. Look at some of the things John wrote. John 1.13, human life is born of the will of the flesh, in other words, by natural human procreation. We know that John doesn't see the flesh as sinful in his gospel because in John 1.14 he said, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. So flesh is talking about humanity and its weakness and its powerlessness. It's, it's limited to those things of earth. And it cannot reach up to God in its own power. To Nicodemus, Jesus said, that which is born of the flesh is flesh. And then he said something that confused this old Sanhedrin member. You must be born from above. You must be born of the Spirit. We are weak, we are mortal, we cannot achieve salvation on our own, and we cannot understand. George Eldon Ladd pointed out in, in a wonderful book, his theology of New Testament, uh, of the New Testament, said worship in spirit means worship that is empowered by the Spirit of God. The Spirit raises men above the earthly level, the level of flesh, and enables them to worship God properly. If you're going to know God, you must have the Spirit of God within you. And that happens just as Jesus told Nicodemus to enter into the kingdom of God, you must be born of the Spirit. Only as people are born of the Spirit, as they yield themselves to the redemption and the work of Christ, and they confess Him as Lord and Savior. Only as that happened, can the Spirit of God indwell us. And by indwelling us, making sure that we can worship in spirit. Folks, the problem of designing worship for people who don't know the Lord, they can't really worship. They need to know Jesus. And yes, we have to find ways of talking to a lost world where they'll listen to us because a lot of them just don't want to hear what we have to say anymore. So we have to find ways to tell them. And when they are born of the Spirit, then we can help disciple them and help them see what it means to worship God. So if God is Spirit, you can't confine Him to things. That's why idol worship is not just irrelevant, it is an insult to God. 
That's why if we get so caught up in a place or things, we lose sight of God. I had a friend who was almost dismissed from his church because to remote the Annie Armstrong Easter offering, he removed a portrait, the only portrait of a pastor in the entire church from its altar-like setting, the foyer, a huge 16 by 20 portrait, underneath which there was a table complete with candles. And he wanted to put up a thing about winning people for Christ in our homeland. And he was told very quickly, if you don't change it back, you're gone. It's not confined to a place. I've known a lot of people who said things like, I can worship God on my bass boat on a Sunday. And that's true, you can, but it's also true you're not. The reality is, if you're on your bass boat, you're catching bass, or hoping to. But you know what? If this building, heaven forbid, were destroyed by a hurricane this season, Bay Vista Baptist did not die. A building did. And we could go back to a Quonset hut and give God glory and honor. And if God is spirit, there's nothing I can bring to Him. There's nothing I can give to God that will make Him say, you did such a great job, Danny. I'm so proud. I can't bring a monetary gift that will impress God. I can't give of anything to God except what Paul suggests in Romans 12.1. I beseech you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice unto God. And when Paul said, give your body to the Lord, he was saying, give everything there is about you. The most important thing we can give to God is our heart, and from that heart comes our love, our loyalty, our obedience, our devotion. That's the gifts you bring to a God who is spirit. So it's not about coming to a certain place or going through certain rituals. Now, Jesus did not outright condemn those things if they are used wisely. A song, order of worship, can be used by God to draw us into His place. The preached Word of God can help us hear the Lord. Our joint prayers together can be meaningful. But true worship is when our spirit, led by the Spirit of God, speaks to and meets with our Father who is Spirit. So that's the in-spirit part. You're born again. You know the Lord, and from your spirit... You're seeking to talk to your Father who is Spirit and tell Him of your love and devotion. Now for the truth part. It it was worship built on the revelation of God. The truth. True worship must be in full accord with the truth as revealed through Jesus Christ. In other words, what we believe matters. And it must be centered, as Redmond says, on Christ. John wrote in John 1.18, No one has ever seen God but the one and only Son, who is himself God, and is in closest relation with the Father. 
The only son has made him known. You want to know God? You got to know Jesus. And everything we're doing is wrapped up on what he has done for us. It will not only be spiritual versus physical, inward instead of outward. It will also be directed to the true God as set forth in Scripture and displayed in the work of redemption. If we want to honor God, if we want to worship Him, I go back to the book. It's got to be at the heart of our worship, the revelation of God in Jesus Christ. And this is the really neat part. Excuse me. Neat is one of those words I still love to use. It really is amazing. It's neat. God is still seeking people who will offer him an acceptable worship. It's been pointed out Jesus didn't just say, worship him in spirit and truth. Jesus went on to say, those are the kind of worshipers God is looking for. Robert Mounts talks about the difference between our faith and the faith of much of the world. He said, in other religions, people are portrayed as seeking God. In the Christian faith, it is God who initiates the search for us. He's looking for people with contrite hearts. He's looking for people with lowly spirits who have opened themselves up to the word of God, to the truth of God's love and grace and his salvation. That is what he wants. And you and I were designed to be worshipers. We are meant to exalt God. And we will never have a lasting significance or satisfaction in our life if we neglect worship. Nothing else can take the place of an encounter with God by his people. Jim Nicodem raises an absurd idea. What if you bought a brand new car? You went out and spent the most money you could on a car. You bring it home, you put it in the garage, and you never drive it. You never use it for transportation. He said, now you do use it. The kids have discovered it makes a really cool playhouse. And your wife has discovered that could be a good greenhouse. So she puts her potted plants on the dashboard in the back seal. And the local kids have discovered you get a couple of boards and ramp them up on both sides, and you can do some really rad rollerblading. And it'll be cool, and it'll be wonderful, and we can make YouTube videos. But you never drive it anywhere. He said, that's absurd. It's ridiculous. It defeats the purpose of why a car is made. We, you and I, were made to worship God. And if that's what we are not doing... If we are not seeking God with all of hearts and spirit and truth, we have failed. He asked his church a question again that I ask you. 
Let me ask you, how much do you worship? He said, because that's what you were made for. God created us with the thirst that can be quenched only when we turn our full focus on him. And so, folks, you and I, what do we need to do? How do we take this true and false and run with it in a way to glorify God? We need to fully engage in the only worship that truly honors God. And every element of our worship, all the things we do here, we don't do them just to say, man, that was cool. I really love that song or that illustration was really neat or really cool. Most of you wouldn't say neat, forgive me. It's not about that. Everything we're doing here is meant to attune our hearts to God. So when we sing, And you know what? Let's just be real. It may make our singing together easier, but you know what? God doesn't care if you're off key. God God doesn't care if you're pitchy. It's what's coming from your heart. So when we sing, let us open our mouths to exalt and honor God. And may every word that comes out of our mouth in song be words we have funneled through our hearts and we paid attention to and we are understanding what we are declaring. When we read Scripture, let's listen carefully to its words. Not just go through a responsive reading and get it over with. Let's listen. Say, God, help it to lead us to greater truth. When we pray, and folks, all of us are supposed to be praying. When we pray, Don't worry if your prayers aren't beautiful. A phenomenon that I'm absolutely amazed of to this day, I've been preaching for over 40 years, and I'm still surprised when people who've known each other almost all of their Christian lives are embarrassed to pray in front of each other. Hope your prayer doesn't have to be beautiful. Your prayer has to be words from your heart to the heart of your Father. Simple. Truthful, meaningful. And when the word is proclaimed, let us ask God, speak to my heart. Can I, I give away preacher's secrets every once in a while. I want to do one today. I've had people come over the course of this last year and a half and said, man, the Lord really convicted me by what you said today. Guess what? I've been dealing with these passages for months at a time, for weeks at a time, going into the Word of God and seeking what I believe He wants us to hear. And guess what? Long before I ever get to this platform, I've already been under conviction. You know a bigger secret? Sometimes when I'm preaching... I come under conviction. I'm pretty sure that Bill and Dave and anyone who's ever stood up and said, thus says the Lord knows exactly what I'm talking about. So God, boy, I sure wished Jebediah was here in service today because he needed that. I had to run through the list real quickly to make sure we had no Jebediahs. Lord, what are you wanting to say to me 
Help me hear your word and help me let you change me. True or false, what do we want? What will we understand? Stuart Sachs of Villanova, Pennsylvania, shared a story out of his work when he was a missionary. He said, while I was serving in Paraguay, a Maka Indian named Rafael came to sit on my porch. I was eating and went out to see what he wanted. He responded, Ham Hinnick met. Again, I asked what I could do for him, but the answer was the same, Ham Hinnick met. Now, this is a kicker. I understood what he was saying, but not its significance. You want to know what it means? I don't want anything. I have just come near. I later shared the incident with a local veteran missionary. He explained that it was Raphael's way of honoring me. He really didn't want anything. He just wanted to sit on my porch. He found satisfaction and pleasure just being near. And Sachs brings it home. What brings you here, my child? The Lord asks. Ham, Hinnick, met. I just want to be near you, Jesus. I just want to be near you, Father. I want to commune with you and your spirit. I just want to be here. And yes, we bring needs before God. But you know the reason we do? Because we know he loves us. Because we've come to meet him. First and foremost, the primary thing that happens here, God, show us yourself and change our lives. Let us just be with you. I had a friend that said it in his own special way, and I loved it. Sometimes I just like to climb on my heavenly father's lap and tell him I love you, daddy. That's the heart of worship. And there are only two ways to do worship according to Jesus. A false way that is focused on what we want, a fleshly form of worship, or we can worship God in spirit and truth. Today I'm asking you join me. Today let us choose to really hear our God's call to worship. Come before your Lord and say, God, today, beginning today, and Lord, I want it to be the rest of my life. Let me be the one you're looking for. Let me be one who worships you in spirit and truth. And if you are under conviction, ask God to purify your heart. Ask God to free you to worship him in the truest of fashion. Folks, as a church, let's understand our worship here. Whatever else may happen, what must happen here is that we worship him in spirit and in truth.